As you can see, we continue on in the Gospel of John, uh, diving into what I like to call a very specific encounter. Uh, and as you look at things, things are done for a reason, maybe uh, even multiple reasons, which we'll see this morning. There's multiple reasons for uh, our Savior's journey uh, up north, but there's always some reason behind what is done. That is why as parents, when we examine uh, the behavior of our children, especially when they do things that baffle us or are subpar, we ask those types of questions. Why did you do that? Or what were you thinking? Because typically they were thinking something. They have a reason. There is a purpose. Uh, we know that things are done uh, for a reason. And that's what we're going to look at as we watch Christ's journey uh, to the north to land in Galilee. But we have this stop along the way, a critical encounter, a specific encounter uh, that he has laid out in his divine purpose. Now, when we last left Jesus, uh, he was out in the countryside of Judea uh, following a brief yet impactful ministry in Jerusalem. He is preaching now uh, near a body of water, preaching repentance. He's seeing and orchestrating people, mainly Jews, being baptized in repentance, which, as we mentioned uh, through the past few weeks, is unique. This is not necessarily the norm for Jews to come and get baptized in repentance. It, it, it crushed their whole elite mindset. It, it destroyed this idea that they were already good, that they were already secure, that they were God's people, which they were, but that they were secured for all eternity. And so this uh, has caused quite a stir, as we notice with John's preaching and also with Christ. And then there's some questions that come from a Jew, and they, they go to John's disciples. And remember, last week, Jesus is preaching further south. John is already preaching up in Samaria near some springs. And so a Jew comes along and ends up where John's disciples are uh, and causes some tension by his questions uh, between John and Jesus. He creates this, this idea that there's a problem. It's a fabricated tension that John we notice resolved directly and quickly. John uh, immediately turned the attention to Christ and said, that's why I came. I'm here so that he can be elevated. I'm not here uh, to build my own ministry. Yet all of this, all of these scenarios, all of these details work to set up this next chapter or narrative uh, found in John's gospel. These were some of the reasons that Jesus leaves, though it is not the main one. Things that set up uh, our next circumstances. And that's verses 1 through 6 where we see a layout what's taking place. Uh, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and here we get our clarification, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And remember, he's from Galilee. This He's going back home. And he must needs go through Samaria. Or worded a different way, he had to go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, which, by the way, and I'm not going to note it too much as we move along, this is an indication of his humanity. He is not faking being tired. He's not pretending to be human and saying, I'm tired. But instead, it's actually legitimately tired. He's wearied. He's, he's worn out from walking. And so he sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour, which makes it noon by, by the recollection. And so we have our circumstances uh, laid out. Now, the bulk of Jesus' ministry takes place up north in that Galilee region. Actually, 
everything we've really seen so far in the Gospel of John is not even recorded in the other Gospel accounts. Uh, they typically pick up when he gets back to Galilee. And so with the mounting attention from the Pharisees, the perceived tension of John's followers, and really the express purpose of God, we find Jesus returning to his home region. If you're returning home, it involves travel. And so the shortest route between southern Israel, where you're going to say Jerusalem rests in the southern region, and the more northern province of Galilee was through Samaria. Now keep in mind that Samaria is not another country. This is not, oh man, we're leaving our country and going into another country to get to our country again at the top. But instead, Samaria was part of the promised land. Uh, in Roman mind, this is all one area, all one territory. This is the province. The Samaritans were tied right with the Jews in the Gentile mindset. But this area had people from a different background and also a different viewpoint of Scripture. And these people were looked down upon by the Jews. Who are the Samaritans? They're a mixed group of people who came into being after the northern kingdom, which would have been Israel. When you're looking at the Old Testament and the kings, it's Israel and Judah. And this is Israel, northern kingdom, uh, went into captivity uh, to Assyria. And most of that nation, most of the people are deported. Those who are left behind, intermarried with pagans, brought to that land by Assyria. And not that Israel was that pure in their religion at that time or faith during that period. And what resulted in the immediate, so go back hundreds of years, what resulted at that time was a synchronistic faith. They started worshiping Yahweh and their own gods. So the, the pagans came in and then lions came in and then Assyria sent a priest back to preach the truth and appease the God of that area. He was a priest that wasn't well-educated and had been in a corrupt political system and a corrupt faith. And so what happened at that time was synchronistic worship. They're worshiping God and the pagan deities. What now is reality, so that is what Samaritans were before, that's the beginning. What we're seeing now at this point in history, and this is centuries after the captivity, uh, centuries after Israel's been returned, Jerusalem rebuilt, the temple rebuilt. What ended up now is that Samaritans worshiped God. They weren't worshiping pagan deities, but limited his revelation to just the Pentateuch, just the first five books of the Bible. And they also felt that worship should take place on Mount Gerizim, which is right where we're at. That's the last, first and last time I'm going to say that word. It's, it's not the temple in Jerusalem. It is on this mountain. They get that from Deuteronomy 18, 18, I believe. Uh, it's an area where, where Abraham first had an altar in the promised land. And so in their mind, and there is some argument because there's some wording changes in their Pentateuch, their Torah, and the ones that the Jews had, the ones that we hold. There's a change in wording to make that the place of worship. And so there is a, a pretty intense argument. If you want to break it down outside looking in, you got two groups of people worshiping the same God, and both of them think they're right about where they should worship, and where they worship is a very critical component of their faith. This is, this is life and death to them. And so here is a group of Jews. Jesus with his disciples, and this is not a perfectly formed band of 12. We're going to see that take place in Galilee. That's where the other gospel accounts let us know how the form of the apostles and disciples really take shape uh, later on. But here's a group of Jews walking through despised territory amongst despised people. And that's the downside of taking the shortest route north. 
But I want us to note something. It was a trip that was planned. Take all the backdrop previously noted. Take the tension that's building in southern Israel. Take the need to move north. Take the fact that they could have traveled on the other side of the Jordan and avoided contact in Samaria altogether. And actually the strictest Jews, the Pharisees and some of the rabbis, would rather travel through Gentile territory on the other side of the Jordan than ever walk through Samaria. And so there was an other option. All these other reasons are not the main reason because contact, connection was one of the main reasons for going through Samaria because there was someone with a divine appointment set to meet the Savior. And before we get further in this narrative, before we talk about contact with the community, which will be next week, uh, do not miss the purpose of God in journeying through Samaria. And it's a fact that John is trying to help us see, and we're going to see more of it in the next verses there was a divine appointment set for a specific woman to be confronted with her Messiah. And this woman will be used to reach her community, and it's a community that previously scorned her. And so as we launch into this journey, which the whole chapter starts with, we got to get to Galilee, and we're midway on our way. The whole focus is a very specific encounter. And I want to encourage us to recognize the plan of God to reach the individual and recognize that God's plan has not changed. It has remained constantly individual. So many people take this story and they see, well, God goes there because he's going to reach that town or he's going to reach, and he does reach the town, but he went there to reach a person who's then used to reach her people. Now, what unfolds in this discourse that follows exemplifies that reality. It is highlighting the truth that our Lord and Savior went to reach a person, that he went on a planned divine mission to connect and to share truth. Jesus, within the past few months, has had an intimate conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, an individual who came seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. This woman's not seeking Jesus. She's just going to end up running into Jesus at an opportune time, at a divinely appointed time. Now, Nicodemus depicted the best Israel had to offer. Here's a Pharisee. Here's the teacher of Israel, part of the ruling religious body. <clears throat> if you wanted to paint a Jew, you paint him Nicodemus. That's what an ideal Jew looks like. Now, in chapter 4, Jesus is about to engage in conversation with a Samaritan despised by the Jews, an example, a woman actually known in her community by her sordid relationships, an example of the least of the least. Yet with Nicodemus, Christ talks about the new birth and confronts his pride, his thought that how could this person who's obviously sent from God be telling us to repent since we're perfect already? Why would we need to repent? And he tells them, you need to to have a new birth. You need to be born again. You need to basically recognize that you're not already redeemed, that you aren't in the kingdom just because you look and smell so good, because you walk and talk a certain way. Yet it's with this lady here, this despised group of people, and I want you to understand in the Jewish mind how despised she was. Sadly, in their culture, a woman was lower in a lot of how they perceive things. And I'll talk about that later. A lot of rabbis wouldn't even talk to their wife in public. So she's a woman. She's a Samaritan. And then on top of that, she's going to be a Samaritan woman who has 
a plethora of relationships. Now, divorce was something they allowed. Moses had given a certificate of divorce, but they had made a man-made rule. You can only be divorced and remarried three times. And you'll notice she's divorced and remarried five times and is in a relationship that's not marriage now. But it's going to be to this woman that Jesus will clearly state that he is the Messiah, something he doesn't do with the Jews. He doesn't emphatically state it. He never looked Nicodemus in the eye and said, I am the Messiah. And actually his last statement uh, gets a little corrupted because we, uh, in English, we add things to help us understand it. But that last phrase is literally Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah, I am which is God's name used all the way back in Exodus, which would have resonated with her since she only read the first five books of the Bible. He tells her uniquely that I am the Messiah. And again, something he, he if he does, is at the end of his life, but he never tells the Jews because theirs was a political Messiah. They would want him to be king now and get rid of Rome. And this woman, this least of least, this planned stop on a way to Galilee, the purpose of going this way is the one that hears him say, I am the Messiah. I am, I'm God, and I am the Messiah. But before we can examine the depth of her conversation, we got to see how it all unfolds. And so we get to the, the context, which is 7 through 15. There's Jesus. He's tired. He's waiting at this well of Jacob. And the disciples that are with them, they've gone in to the town to buy food. And it says, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city uh, to buy meat, which means grain or something to eat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou being a Jew ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And I'll explain that. It doesn't mean they don't talk to them. It means they don't use the same vessel. They don't use the same cups. They don't share that. Um, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knowest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And that was a rhetorical question that she's assuming the answer to is no. You're, she's basically saying, you're not better than Jacob who dug this well. You're not better than the father of Israel. You're not better than that. Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, as I mentioned, we already know Jesus is tired. Thus, he's resting at the well while the disciples go into town to buy food. As he's resting, here comes a woman to the well to get water for herself and her home. Now, I'm sure you've heard it plenty of times. She's coming at a very odd hour. Most people don't come draw water at noon, at the heat of the day. And really, she's coming to an odd location. She has walked past already a living fountain of water. She's walked past a spring of water uh, that you could get water from. It's much closer. She's added, I think, about a half mile to her walk. 
to get to Jacob's well. It's actually kind of interesting because we always, and it is a desert climate that's there, uh, but we always assume this is the only source of water. It's not. Actually, this place is known for water. People are actually kind of surprised. Why did Jacob dig a well there with water being literally a half mile away? And you got to remember some of the conflicts in the Old Testament uh, when Isaac is leaving Abimelech and then they, he digs a well and they come and steal the well. Water was always a battleground. And so Jacob, after buying this property, probably wanted a source of water that he could say was his own. Uh, this was an interesting well because it was clearly fed by a moving underground stream. And so it was very good water, fresh water. I'll mention later on, there was some superstition attached to the water. And so she could have been there at this well, one, to never bump into anybody, and two, to get what she would consider as special water that would have some spiritual significance in their mind. But all of this, all of this circumstances, Jesus still does the astounding thing and asks this woman for water. And it's a request that was very countercultural. It was countercultural to converse with a female stranger. As I mentioned, really elite rabbis didn't talk to their wife in public. But you never talk to a strange female like this, especially if you're part of the elite of the Jews. Counterculture to request a favor from a Samaritan. You wouldn't talk to a woman, and you definitely wouldn't ask a favor of a Samaritan. And then the, the, the mind-boggling part, the thing that, that's blowing her mind, is it's countercultural to plan on using the same vessel she was to use. And again, I mention this because you can, it's easy to read it wrong. Uh, the phrase, no dealing with the Samaritans in Greek literally means don't use the same cup or vessel as a Samaritan. To help understand that, remember the disciples are going to a Samaritan town and are buying food. So obviously they're dealing with Samaritans. You're just not going to use the same vessel. The concept would be not drinking after someone else, not sharing their cup. And, and I get that. Growing up, my family did not share cups or bottles. At least I didn't and never noticed anyone else doing it. I broke that once in my life that I remember uh, before getting married. Heather's family's filled with barbarians that share and <laughs> sip after each other. There was a time I didn't set my Coke down or cup down. I think the, I remember the first time, I mean, it just still blew my mind that she would want to drink after me, and even more so that she thought I would want to drink after her. But either way, I digress <laughs> at all. I'm 18 or 19. It's summertime, I'm home from college, uh, and on our family's greenhouse, there's outdoor fields, and these outdoor fields had this network of concrete paths, and in my father's infinite wisdom, he wanted to jackhammer up one of those paths, or all of them actually, a path to go through. And me, and I, I think the guy's name was John, I'd hate to say it, but here we are, here's this guy that's lifting weights, and we have a jackhammer rented. I'm 18, 19. I'm a lot smaller than I am now. There's no weight to put behind this thing. And so we're swapping turns, jackhammering out in the heat. I was never intelligent as a teenager and never brought my own water. And I still remember being out in the middle of the field and I, I jackhammered and, and it's dusty and I'm thirsty. And I think it was again, John or Jack. And he, he had a gallon of milk there, but it's in an old milk jug on site. And I want you to understand, because I still get grossed out by this. In other words, the only way you're drinking out of this jug is, is you can't sip it, you can't squirt it, you got to put your mouth on it. 
And I keep a long story short, due to distance, heat, and thirst, I ended up taking a drink from that jug, and it's bothered me ever since. <laughs> I feel defiled even today. Um, now, I want us to realize that during this time in history, people drank after each other. They had not adapted that hygiene at all. I would have struggled. But a Jew would never in a million years take a sip out of a Samaritan's cup. It was defiling. It was, it was spiritually filthy to them. And so they would never have done this. So when the woman hears that and she sees he has no vessel, he has no rope, because imagine the well is about 100 feet deep. After they cleared debris out, it's 100 feet deep. You need a rope. You need something to draw the water up with. He's got nothing with him. And so the woman is naturally skeptical and brings up all the division and hurt resident between Jews and Samaritan. Jesus, however, flips the conversation and says something that was reaching. She brings up hurt and he flips it around and says, hey, I have living water. <coughs> I can offer you the gift of God because he speaks to her of salvation and ties it right away to an analogy often used in the Old Testament. If you go to Isaiah, Isaiah spoke of salvation in the context of water. Isaiah 12, 3 says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jeremiah reprimanded the nation of Israel by saying, you've picked broken wells that don't hold water over God, the fountain of living water. You see, the conversation started with Jesus being physically thirsty, and now he's turned it to addressing her desperate spiritual thirst, the one that only the Savior could fulfill. She misses the point completely. Like Nicodemus, she just bypasses the reality and the, and the spiritual significance that's there. And then she wonders how Jesus could draw this special water without any tools. And again, as I mentioned, she might be thinking, oh, you think you can pull the, the special water out of Jacob's well and give it to me? And that's going to be your supposed special drink because you're a Jew and you're passing it. And then she even uh, questions the validity of what Jesus has said. Are you better than Jacob? And as I mentioned before, with the implied, you're most definitely not better than Jacob. And then Jesus replies with clarification. He says that his water would create a living spring within her. In essence, he told her, I am much greater than Jacob and talking about something beyond physical water. And she again misses the point and remains fixed on the physical side. Her interest, though, is now piqued about miracle water. She's suddenly thinking, wow, this, is, this would be amazing. And I want us to kind of grab the context from this conversation. We see something in Christ. We've watched him go through Samaria on purpose. He could have gone around Samaria. But he is going to a certain place at a certain time. Physically, he's wearied. He stays, the disciples go in to get the food. And that's kind of interesting, right? Takes all the people with him to go buy the food, except he's going to stay by himself. And, and we can't miss it in reality. The norm would be someone else stays with him. That's not what happens. Why? Because he has a plan to talk to somebody specific. There's a plan. And then we watch Jesus not be constrained by the prejudice and bias of the day. He had a plan, and the plan was the soul of this specific woman. So he broke with hateful norms of his time and reached for the heart of this woman. And this woman, in all reality, is somewhat set on resisting him. Every request, every comment he's made so far, have you noticed? Can I get a drink? What? A Jew asking me for a drink? 
Oh, if you know what I was saying, I would offer you living water. You, what are you going to draw water with? You don't even have the tools to draw water. I have living water will spring up into your soul. Oh, I like some miracle water. She's resisted to this point. But what has he done over and over again? Broken with the prejudice and the bias and the hateful norms of the day. And I put as a question, are we willing to do the same today? Break with prejudice, break with preconceived bias and reach as his ambassador for the souls of lost humanity, of lost individuals. As you look at the story of the woman at the well, as you look at the Samaritan woman, and we're about to get into how bad her life was and how sinful it was, we cannot miss the example Christ is setting for a very planned and passionate pursuit of individual souls. That without a doubt, we are not to see humanity as a mass of humanity, but instead are supposed to see the person and reach for the person. Jesus most certainly was willing to do this and did, but to accomplish the purpose intended, he had to move the conversation. She is locked into the temporal or has used the temporal as a way of deflecting from spiritual. And so Jesus now turns the conversation in a way that brings conviction. Now we get to 16 and 19. And so it seems like a, a major shift because we've been talking about water and now we're talking about spiritual water. And then she's asking for the spiritual water or the miracle water as she sees it. And Jesus suddenly asks her some random question. He says, uh, say something, go call thy husband and come hither. Go get, your, go get your spouse and come back. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. And notice how he confirms her. He affirms her because what she said was true. She didn't have a husband at that time. But then he goes on and lets her know who she really was. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not thy husband. In that you talk truth, he says. You said the truth. You don't have a husband. You've, got, you've had five, and you're not with a husband right now. Sixth person that we know of now. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And here we see the heart need exposed. Jesus brings out the sin that she was attempting to keep hidden. And I want us to see something that was necessary. Humanity grates when sin becomes the subject. If you're being honest with yourself, if you sit for a second, it almost seems a little mean, right? Here he's talking to this lady She's got to come out at noon. She's coming to the miracle well, supposedly, walked the extra half mile or, or more to get this water. We're talking about it. And, and let's be honest, she's resistant, which, which defines a little bit of humanity as a whole. It defines us, right? And then Jesus has to come and, and circle around and bring up this idea of sin. And we realize that when we are confronted with sin, we grate to have sin exposed in our world today, they great to even have sin called sin. People write songs about the fact that they don't want or believe in sin. This causes tension in them, I say, speaking of humanity. But let's be honest, it causes tension in us. It draws from us an accusation against anyone who would bring it to light. And what do we say? Right away, we're going to say, well, what a religious bully. What, what, a, what, a, what a, a, a person with blinders. What a bigot. How horrible are they? And I, I want to hit on that because what Jesus is doing was necessary. And so what's easy to do when you read of Jesus switching the conversation and suddenly saying to her, bring your husband by. 
and then exposing her sin that she's buying to keep undercover. It's easy to look at the Savior and say, well, that was, that was mean of him, that was a bully, and that would be grossly unjust and sinful. He, the one who stepped away from prejudice and bias, and I want you to realize this, graciously and mercifully exposes her desperate need of salvation by exposing her sin. He wasn't exposing her sin to hurt her or to belittle her or to make her feel less than, to harm her psyche. Instead, he exposed her sin so she would understand her desperate need of salvation, that she could not cover it with some miracle water or by doing a few things here and there to take care of it. We need to understand this, and this is a critical part of the conversation. Sin revealed shows the true nature and depth of Christ's gift of salvation and forgiveness. It brings to light the depth of our need as humanity and therefore highlights the true magnitude of his sacrifice. If you don't understand the idea of sin and not just the idea of, of sin of the world, but of your individual sin, if you don't get a grip on how horrific that is and, and how exposed that is, and you have a hard time understanding what Christ has done for you. The Old Testament law, with its rules, its life, sacrifice, atonement, that law showed that. It made it known. And the Samaritans, though they didn't accept the whole Old Testament, would have known that. If you read the book of Leviticus, and we went through it last year, you understand what atonement is. You understand the depth of atonement or how, how involved it is when you see how woven into the fabric of the Israelites' life was sacrifice from daily to weekly to monthly to yearly. And it's this constant reminder that atonement is necessary because they're sinful. And it seems like they have a million rules and how would you ever keep those rules? And Paul writes about that. What does the law do for us? It tells us we have need. It exposes what we don't have, what we cannot do for ourselves. And so when you come to this conviction that Christ brings, and it's easy to say, wow, man, he just bait and switched on her. He just hooked her in. He caught her in a trap. No, he didn't. He graciously and mercifully led her to see her sin, to be confronted with the reality of her desperate need. It is always God's grace and mercy that brings to light our sin that exposes it so that we can grasp the depth of our need. When we share truth, though, does it come with a correct and clear view of sin and its destruction of someone's spiritual life? Does our truth shared come with conviction? But let me be a little bit more individual at this moment. Have you been personally convicted of your own sin? Have you seen your sin and seen it for what it really and actually is? Have you acknowledged your desperate and deep need of the Savior? And if you have, do you allow the Word of God to penetrate the exterior of your righteousness and highlight needed change, convict you to change and repent so that you can grow in Christ? See, Jesus brought needed conviction in the most tender of ways, he even acknowledged the truth of what she had said while still exposing the blatant cover-up. He wasn't being ugly like, oh yeah, you told the truth, but you're really a liar. He actually was sincere in saying, yes, what you said was a truth, but you're not talking about what is sinful in life, what is the problem. 
she responds immediately stating that Jesus must be a prophet. And, and I want you to understand how big that statement was. When a Jew says to Christ, rabbi or prophet, well, there's a whole list of prophets that they've accepted. All through the Old Testament, there's prophets. She acknowledges no other prophet but Moses. She goes back to Deuteronomy and it says that there's going to be a greater Moses that comes. And in other words, in the Samaritan mind, there is Moses, the prophet, and then Messiah, which their wording for it was Taleb, the restorer or the, the teacher. And so when she says to him, you must be a prophet, recognize that she is moving drastically in a direction to see him for who he is. She is moving towards understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, our Lord and Redeemer. But that's not going to happen completely uh, without a connection. And that's what takes place in verses 20 through 26. She continues, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. In other words, she brings up an old theological debate. Jesus says unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. He answers the question. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And that's actually in some ways where Samaritans had a better look at the Messiah than the Jews. The Jews saw him as a conquering king. They actually saw him as a teacher, as someone who's going to show them all things, teach everything. And then Jesus, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am, and if you, uh, if you have uh, some Bibles, they italicize words. If you see italicized words, it's actually not in Hebrew. So it's not there. It's added for your understanding. It ends there. I that speak unto thee am. It's an I am statement in the Gospel of John. He's saying to her, I am, I'm God, and I'm the Messiah. But notice this. She opens with the question of the day, at least in the Samaritan Jewish context. Where's the right place to worship? And in, in light of real-life conviction, she kind of turns to that age-old debate. And I see this happen all the time. I had a, an encounter with somebody, it was, a, it was a, uh, probably a month or so ago, and they were coming out and they're lost. They don't know Christ as their Savior. Uh, their relatives have told me, please pray for her to get saved. And we come out, and immediately she brings up a tradition from her past. She's like, well, I like church, but... This doesn't happen here. And I said, well, that's convenient, but let's talk about what you believe in. And it's just interesting, whenever we're confronted sometimes with truth, with, with the reality of who God is and thus our response to him, we oftentimes bait and switch, don't we? We start talking about things that aren't the topic. And Jesus, as only he can, without ignoring the topic she mentioned, gives an answer that is beyond the debates. And I put something that was deeper and I would say, as, as a side note, it, it's time for us to get deeper in our conversations. To stop swirling at this shallow surface level and dive to the depths of what Christ has done for us and what that implies for our life, the depths of things. See, the debate at hand centered on location. And Jesus says that's not eternally important. He is concerned about the nature of worship, not the place of worship. But he answers her question. And then explains true worship. First, he says, look, you guys are mistaken. He makes it clear 
without ever questioning their sincerity. He doesn't say, you don't know what you're doing, you're insincere worshipers. He just says, you worship what you don't know. You don't fully understand. And the reality is they couldn't because they had rejected part of God's word. And so they couldn't get a clear understanding or a clear grasp because they've missed it. And he says, in contrast, the Jews worship what they know. And though all Jews are not redeemed, they did have a knowledge of God accessible because of the word of God. I want you to recognize the weight that comes with that statement. Yes, on the Samaritan side, he's saying you're ignorant of, of who you worship. The object of your worship, you don't really know. And then he flips and says the Jews do actually know the object, but they don't completely worship. It brings a lot of weight to those who reject the Messiah. Because really, as the Jewish nation, they're without excuse because here is Christ affirming. They know. They, they have it. They, they know who they're supposed to be worshiping. And then in closing, he says, salvation, the Messiah, would come from the Jews. And that's something seen and promised in Scripture. And it's actually a reality that you see in the Pentateuch, so the Samaritans should have known it. Because it's promised in Genesis. When Jacob is talking to his sons, he tells Judah what's going to happen. It's seen in Exodus. It's seen in Balaam's, uh, when he attempts to curse Israel, he actually predicts what's going to come forward. And so the, the prediction of the Messiah coming from the Jews and out of the tribe of Judah is, is listed there. It's, it's in the whole Testament, including what they tended to read. But that debate is not the central point of worship. If she was to worship, then worship would be in spirit and in truth. And that's not two things separate. It's, it's two and one together as a one unit. Spirit is speaking here of the human spirit. It means simply that worship will be internal. It's not external conformity. It's not going to be legalistic. And what I prefer over legalistic, because we kind of distance ourselves with those terms, it's not checking boxes. Worship is not checking boxes. And then truth speaks here of worshiping according to scripture by its mandates and worship that is centered on the word made flesh. Truth deals with following what God said to do in worship, and it must center on what John started talking about, the word made flesh, Christ. This confronts the thinking of many in churches today. They see themselves as worshipers because they check the right boxes. Or let me put it bluntly, you think you're a worshiper because you're here. But that doesn't make you a worshiper because you worship in spirit and in truth. But let's get the other side of the equation because there's a host of supposed Christians or maybe real Christians that pretend to be spiritual because they pause to feel the breeze on a mountain instead of fellowshipping and worshiping with the body of Christ. Neither of those is true worship. You don't swap checkbox Christianity for true heart worship, spirit, or replace truth with whatever you want to do to feel spiritual. God instead calls for worship in spirit and in truth. I want your heart, and I want you to worship as God has directed through his word, with the central point of worship being Jesus Christ. You can expose the mountaintop worshipers because they're at an experience they're doing it for themselves, and it's most definitely not centered on Jesus Christ, nor following the mandates of Scripture of gathering on the Lord's Day and worshiping together with the body of Christ. And you can confront the very legalistic box checkers who sit down and say, I checked the religion box. And Jesus is making sure they understand no boxes to check, 
no doing things, whatever you want to do. It's in spirit and in truth. And then he reminds them of something. God is spirit. Now, why would they say that? Well, the thinking of the day, right, is that God is a superhuman, that he's an exalted man. And actually, sadly, we, we, we fall into the same type of thinking. We start thinking, well, here is Superman. And that's who we worship. That is not who God is. God is spirit. Carson notes that that is God is spirit means that God is invisible, divine as opposed to human, life-giving and unknowable to human beings unless he chooses to reveal himself. That's what that means. He is spirit. It's the biblical definition of his nature. And then he's worshiped in spirit and in truth. And that's what he desires and demands. And understand something about God. You only know about God what God allows you to know. Why are we so emphatic about the word of God and this being the authority, that it's an inerrant word of God? This is authority. This is our guide. Because what we can know about God can only be found in his word because what is revealed about God is what he has allowed us to see. By all means, you don't know everything about God, and you cannot because you are not God. And so he has elevated right away what she needs to do, how she needs to see God. He's making what they don't know knowable. He's helping her see who God is. The woman responds with an affirmation of the Messiah coming and the trust she would have in what he said. She's basically begging for Jesus to affirm what she suspects. When Messiah comes, I will most definitely not argue with him. I will believe everything that he says. And then he emphatically does that, stating that he is the Messiah. I that speak unto thee am he, which when literally translated is, I who speak to you am or another way is, I that speak to you, I am. And you go all the way back to Exodus when Moses says, who's sending me? Who do I tell the Jews? When I go to Egypt, when I say, I'm coming, who am I coming from? And he says, I am sent you. If he was in Jerusalem and made that statement, they would have attempted to kill him immediately. But what he's doing for this woman is giving a clear and emphatic announcement of his deity helping her understand that Messiah is God and that he is that long-awaited Messiah. And he cleared up the confusion of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would accomplish. The Messiah was not here at the beck and call of the world. We struggle with that. We, we approach God, we approach Christ with this idea that we'll tell him what to do for us. We worship him, but really he serves us. He's at our beck and call. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, amongst the Jews, he was this political ruler. We're going to watch him make bread, and they're going to say, wait a second, he's the bread factory. He can solve my temporal problem. And what Christ is making clear to this woman in this out-of-the-way place at Jacob's well is that the Messiah is not here at the beck and call of the world. He's not here to decide on every petty issue, but instead he is here as the Savior of the world, Leon Morris writes it well, the answer of God, this is who Jesus Christ was, the answer of God to the sin of the world. Why is the Messiah here? To be the answer of God to the sin of the world, which should drive us to ask ourselves, do I know that answer? And do I make that answer known? Because he's the answer 
to the sin of the world. Jesus and company made their way north for specific reasons. But the most critical was a specific encounter with a Samaritan woman. Her soul, her eternal destiny was the purposeful aim of the Savior. Society would have tossed her aside. A Samaritan, a scandalous woman rejected by her own culture and society, meaningless in the eyes of that world. Could you be any lower on the echelon of society? And that world would have said, absolutely not. She couldn't be worse. But in God's eyes, nothing is left to chance. No one is discarded. He brought to her the living water, eternal life possible only through his salvation. Uh, when you see this woman at the well and she doesn't have the formal education, uh, she doesn't have the, the benefit of lineage, but you see someone whose heart is prepared to hear the truth. You have to rewind, and John does this on purpose. There's always this comparison. And in John 5, we're going to see a, a blind man healed, and it's the, it's the ugliest response to a miracle you can get because he's selfish and self-consumed. And then you go to John 9, and it's one of my favorite miracles because it's the blind man that then is sarcastic with the Pharisees and defending Christ even though he's never really met him. And so there's always contrast. And what you're seeing is John chapter 3, there's Nicodemus who does come to know Christ later on. But in John 3, he's, he's affronted by Christ and saying, oh, how dare you say I need to repent is basically what he's saying. And here this woman, though she responds in a similar way, her heart's broken. It's submitting. And we see her come to know Christ and then become an immediate witness for him. In this 26 verses, though, we learn a lot about the beautiful salvation from that encounter with the woman at well. One writer notes this, it was John MacArthur. He closed his chapter out on this. He says, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well illustrates three non-negotiable truths about salvation. First, salvation comes only to those who recognize their desperate need for spiritual life that they do not have. You'll never be saved if you examine your life and think it's good and see good in yourself, to see some redeemable feature in yourself. To say God's lucky to have me, and you'll never say it, but that's what you're implying when you don't see your desperate need. Living water will be received only by those who realize that they are spiritually thirsty. Second, salvation comes only to those who confess and repent of their sin and desire forgiveness. Before this promiscuous woman could embrace the Savior, she had to acknowledge the full weight of her iniquity. And third, salvation comes only to those who embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah and sin bearer. After all, Salvation is found in no one else.